taking a look at the creeds. Last week we took a look at why the creeds are important. And there were three reasons that I wrote down, four reasons why they are important. One, who, who remembers? Biblical. That is, they come, the Bible has creeds, and the creeds come from the Bible. The exegetical interpretive work. Okay, what's the other, what's number two? Not somebody other than John. John Luke. Historical. And that's not what happens when something weird happens. You get historical. No. <laughs> historical means that they have stood the test of time. That they have been around, they have been analyzed over and over again. And throughout the, te the t time, the leaders and churches have said, yes, good stuff. Okay? What's the third? Orthodox. Yeah, we could we could use that one. That's not the word I use, but it's a good synonym. Nim 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 nim. The word I used is reliable. That is, they were approved. They've been verified, and they are orthodox, right teaching. That's what it, orthodox means, right teaching. And the last one, number four on the hit parade. Oh, I failed. <laughs> they are enriching. They will Increase your prayer life, your worship life, your trust life with the Lord. For the more you know about God, and that's what the creeds are meant to do, give you more knowledge about God, the more you will trust Him, the more you will want to praise Him, and the better will be your praise. Okay? One of the commandments, you shall have no idols or no graven images. That's always our problem is we create idols. Most of us, our idols are up here. And most of them have to do with what we think about God. If you think God is a great grandfather who's up in the sky, who just smiles on you and dotes on you and gives you all the gifts that you want and comes and taps you on the head and says, my, 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 what a good little child you are. Meanwhile, the parents are going, no, 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 no. We know him a whole lot better than that. If that's the way you think God is, then that's how you're going to worship him and that's how you're going to act. And so something horrible happens in your life. You say, Grandfather, where were you? I mean, that's an idol. The creeds help you to understand who God is and how then to rightly worship him. Okay. Let's take a little time to define what we're dealing with. We have a word creed. Whoop, double E. Which comes from the word, Latin word, credo. Which means, I believe. We believe. It's a personal statement of faith. 
Then you have confession, which is a corporate statement of faith, or it is a, an elaborate statement of what we believe. And finally, we have creeds, confessions, and is there catechisms, which I can never remember how to spell. Catechism, it's questions and answers. It's a way of teaching. And it's been a way of teaching for centuries, millenniums. I ask you a question, you learn and give me back the answer. Heidelberg catechism is exactly that. What is the chief end? Well, this is a Westminster larger catechism. What is the chief end of man? And you all respond, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. That's why I like the larger more than the shorter. That is a way of teaching. New City Catechism is exactly that, and that's what's being taught downstairs. So you have these three different. You have the Westminster Confession, which goes so deeply into the things of our faith that it takes you a whole lifetime to, re to know uh, and, and to figure it out. And you read it and you think, what kind of language is this? And then you realize they were writing for eighth graders in their day and age who understood that language. And we go to the dictionary. So you turn on your computer, you draw up the confession, and you hit the word, and the dictionary comes out and tells you what it means. Because we don't know the, the definitions. And finally, the creeds. Nicene Creed is one that we use every Sunday. How does it start? Come on, you've said it every Sunday. <laughs> I expect John to know it. <laughs> we believe it's a corporate statement of faith versus the Apostles' Creed. And how did, well, you may not know this one as much. Do you know, remember how it starts? I believe because there is a particular reason they developed the Apostles' Creed versus the Nicene Creed. It wasn't some slip of the pen of a scribe. They started, I believe, we believe. Okay, the issue we're dealing with here is the issue of no eraser. Behind the board on a stool? Nope. Well... I just have to write over my own reading and you'll have to figure it out, okay? Well, the issue is, first, you have the first council of the church, Acts 15. Acts 15 is when, in that context, they were agitated about the nature and the manner of salvation. For there were Jewish Christians who said, if you really want to be a good Christian... You'll follow the Old Testament law. If you're a guy, you'll be circumcised. You won't cut your hair. You, you won't do certain things because that'll make you a better Christian and more loved by God. And Paul was going, no, 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 it's all by grace. 
those may help, but they are not what makes you right with God. And because of that, con that issue, they went back to Jerusalem and said, elders of the church, what are we going to do about this? And they debated. And they debated. Paul and Barnabas gave to them their, thank you, he gets an A for the day. Paul and Barnabas gave their part, the others gave their part, and they talked it back and forth. Now this wasn't a five-minute conversation. This is a long, drawn-out, and my sense from that passage, Acts 15, is it was contentious. They weren't just going, oh, let's see what this might be. They were, you idiot! How come you say that? No, it's not quite that, but it was contentious. It's okay to be contentious when you're dealing with matters of the faith. And finally, they come back from the debate and they make a proposition. And they print that proposition and they communicate that proposition and that becomes one of the first creeds of the church. We don't usually put it in the book, our creedal books, but it tells the people how then they are to live and what are they su uh, supposed to expect from the Old Testament law and how do they deal with the Old Testament law. The issue here after that is the apostles die and when they die they don't have that apostolic teaching. They have it recorded in books but those books are spread throughout basically the Roman Empire. Some have Ephesians, some have a Gospel of Mark, some have Matthew, but they aren't all together. And so now they're trying to figure out what did they teach and how do we deal with questions that arise because of those teachings. And so they began to develop these creeds to establish the, the, the public criteria for orthodoxy to show the most fundamental building blocks of the faith. To abolish that which would be against the faith. And to keep the church uni unified. For you remember Jesus' prayer in John 17? Father, may they be one as you and I are one. Why? So that you, they may know that you have sent me. See? Unity within the, faith, within the faith and within the church is important because it demonstrates the relationship of the Son and the Father and our salvation upon what is it built. And so they began to form what the Apostle Peter wanted them to do in 1 Peter 3. He talks to them in verse 15, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. A defense. It is the word Logos, Apo. 
It's a defense, and it's apology. Not in the sense, oh, I'm sorry, I believe. I know. I, I know you don't like it, but I'm sorry. No. What it is, it's giving a defense for the faith. And to do it with gentleness and with respect. That's why those people that buttonhole people on the street go, Do you leave? Aren't doing apologetics. Because it's not with respect and gentleness. It allows a person to hear what you're saying and then back away and give them time either to think, to respond and answer those responses, or to reject. You have to say that's part of it. So that's what they were doing. And, and what they were, the early church was trying to do is to build the defense for what we believe, what comes from the Bible. And they were also dealing with, if you're at First Peter, just turn back a couple pages. Or hit the button, find Titus, go to the third chapter, scroll a little bit. I love paper because it's so easier, so much easier. Third chapter, verses 8 and onward. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But, and whenever you see that word but, you know that there's going to be a contrast coming. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Ask for a person who, stands, who stirs up division. After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That word division is a word from which we get this word, a heretic. Now, in our day and age, we don't like to call people heretics. That's just not polite. It's just not nice. It makes them feel bad when they probably ought to feel very bad. <laughs> okay? But they are heretics because what they're doing is causing division within the church, destroying the unity for which Christ died. And therefore you deal with them. And you study these creeds because, as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. The things they dealt with back in the first four centuries, five centuries, are the same things we deal with today. There's just absolutely nothing under the sun. People say, I have a new idea. And I said, no, if you go back far enough, you'll find out somebody already said that idea, gave it to you. It's also part of the scourge of our day. There are people, adults and basically teen teenagers who are leaving the church. They get to college. They hear their professors pontificate on all sorts of subjects. And they say, oh, that's not what I know. They must be right. They're a professor. They have a PhD in front of their name. Right? They have to be right. And we find out that in most churches... They're never teaching the faith how to have a good marriage, how to date, 
how to drive your car. That's, that's one of the things I remember from my youth group, how to drive a car. And when you're driving a car, you look through the window in front of you to see what's happening in the traffic in front of you. See, that's, that's the one thing I remember from my whole youth group. <laughs> but that's what they teach. And so when you get into these situations when you have to give a defense for your faith and you have nothing that you have learned about your faith, you'll jettison it. Adults are the same way. They get somebody knocking on their door and coming in and giving them some kind of question and spiel about their faith, and they have no response. They can't do 1 Peter 3.15. Uh, and what we see, again, nothing new under the sun. Since about the 1830s, we have been repeating the early history of the church. And people don't even know it. There's a rise of rationalism, of enlightenment. There's a rise of cults. Again, that's not an acceptable word in our day, but I use it. Cults. That which deviates from Orthodox Christianity. There's a rise of the same issues we're going to be looking at this, this morning that are just happening with a little bit different covering. And if you know the past, you now know how to deal with the future. You see, you cannot live in your own time zone. You have to expand. My kids are very happy that I finally got into 2002 with computers. <laughs> and I am so far behind where they are. But I remind them, you'd better know the 60s and 70s from which a lot of the turmoil has happened. You'd better know the 1800s when the cults start. You'd better know what happened in history and why it happened in history and why it's different and what it has to say to us today. Otherwise, you're liable to repeat it over and over and over again because you haven't learned it. Now, on your part, you see, you have to do that. I lived through the 1800s. <laughs> no, no, not quite. <laughs> not that old. But you have to be able to get out of your own time zone and into the world time zone. I mean, even better, God's time zone. From the beginning of creation up till today because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't even know what's going to happen the next hour. So that's why you study the creeds. That's why you take the time. Okay, let's take a look, look at early heretics. And first I'm going to give you the negative, and then I'll give you the positive. First one, docetism. Let me ask, other than John, does somebody know what this means? Yeah. Jesus was a spirit. That means he was just kind of a Casper the Friendly Ghost. <laughs> you know, crudely put, but that's the idea. He wasn't a real man. He didn't eat, didn't drink, wasn't tired. They, they had no body. 
and therefore there was no virgin birth. He just there was a he was he had the appearance of that, so the disciples actually thought he was human, but no, he wasn't. And therefore, even his death was a mirage. He was on the cross, but it wasn't really him. And therefore, his death has no salvific importance. It has nothing to do with our salvation. We are still unrescued. We are still under the, in our sin and under the wrath of God. And Jesus, at best, was simply a good moral teacher. Now, you know the quote of C.S. Lewis. Anyone who says that Jesus is a good moral teacher is wrong. Why? For if you believe the things that he said, he's either a liar, a lunatic, because he lied about who he is. He's a lunatic who thinks he's on the same level as a man who says, I'm a poached egg. We've got a few of those running around. Or he was Lord. There's no other options. You have to take one of those. So a docetist would say, he's simply a phantom, a good moral teacher. Well, you know where you find that today? Liberalism, liberal theology, and humanism. But, you know, Jesus was such a good teacher. We should emulate the things that he taught. We should learn that the whole gospel is a sermon on the mount. And that's what you do to make yourself right with God. First of all, when someone says that's what you do to make yourself right with God, you know you've gone out of grace. The doing part is the problem. And second of all, he said none of you could ever follow this even if I gave it to you. We can't. How many of us, he, he redefines or he deepens the Ten Commandments. He says, you shall, you've heard it said to you, you shall not murder. Which was one of the Ten Commandments. But I say unto you, if you are angry with a person, you have murdered them. At least in, internally. So, when you're driving down Smithfield and some guy pulls out in front of you, and you go, you idiot! You have, in essence, murdered that person. When you say to someone, get lost! You've murdered that person. How can you keep that stuff? You can't. That was the whole point. You can't do it. Now, docetism said, okay, he's a spirit. Then what do you do with all those parts that showed him tired, angry, and all sorts of human human abilities or human humanness gnostics gnostics says you need special revelation that's what the word gnosis is a greek word for knowledge and it is especially a super knowledge a knowledge that goes beyond and therefore in their realm of understanding, they said, all the physical is evil and is not worthy of God. How could God ever assume the physical? How could the son ever become a man? Because that would be inherently evil and God needs to shield himself from the physical. 
So what do you what do you do? In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well, you insert in there that first of all God created some special beings. The first one being his son. And out of out of that he created angels, and it was the angels who created the world. Therefore God has taken away from being creating evil, but he's separated from his creation. And they said that because of that, Jesus could not possibly have been the God-man. And then they get into the John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, they do what the Jehovah's Witness, or the Mormons do, actually. They add a little word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Why? Because the proper word, the, is not in the original. When every Greek scholar knows you don't need it in the original, it, it, it's implied. So if he's only a God, he may be the supreme a God, but he is not God. See, that's how you defeat uh, a Mormon. When they come to your door, those guys with the black slacks and the white shirts and the ties. Just simply John 1.1. That ought to be enough. However, it takes a little bit longer than that. And they said the God of the Jews, that is the God of the Old Testament, was one of those angels. And Christ came to destroy the God of the Jews along with bad people and bad angels. And they said, just take it away. So that's why they had very, didn't have very much use for the Old Testament. Why, that's a sub-God. It's not our God, is what they would say. They also held some really strange things like marriage because it is physical and procreation because it's physical is evil. It comes from Satan. Therefore, you shouldn't get married. You shouldn't procreate. You know what they're like? Yeah, really tough. Really tough. First of all, you've got to convince a lot of people that your premise is... is uh, True and correct in the first place. But there used to be a colony of people out in Beaver Creek, where I think it's a junior high school is now. They were called Shakers. Shakertown Road came because it came next to their village. They are no longer in existence. They died out because they wouldn't procreate. And they sure couldn't get any more disciples to come in. You see... From the 200s, 100, 200s AD, it hasn't changed. Not at all. So then you have Marcion. Marcion is, is a character. Marcion is actually a person. There are a lot of Marcions. <laughs> it's, it's Martians. Martians, the little, little guy that runs around with a ray gun. Bugs Bunny. <laughs> Thank you. Somebody knows their comics. That's all. Martian rejected the Old Testament because he thought it described an inferior God. It was a God who was wrathful. It was a God who tells his people to kill people. It was a God who has animal sacrifices and only gives law and punishment, is, who sits there as a God who is a, a dictator that beats people on their head. 
until they actually acquiesce to what he wants them to do. And he said, that's not the God that Jesus showed us. Jesus was love. Jesus was mercy. Jesus was grace. You can tell Marcion didn't like Matthew 23 and 24. Woe unto you Pharisees who go around the world to make one convert. And when you make one convert, you make them twice as fit for hell than they were before. Where did that come from? <laughs> Why, wow, that's the Old Testament influence that Jesus had. But see, that's not the picture of Jesus. Again, they're making an idol. So he, he rejected the old. He mutilated the gospel of Luke, the only gospel he accepted. He took out the birth narratives. Well, Jesus could not have been born a son of David. He could not have been given the titles he was by God. He could not possibly have come born of a virgin. He was just a good person. And the, that he came, that Jesus came to destroy the Old Testament prophets and the law. And Marcion only accepted 10 books all written by Paul that had nothing to do really with the Old Testament, though you may make the case that every one of Paul's books has something to do with the Old Testament. It's just complete in there. He didn't like the pastorals. He didn't like Hebrews or any of the other books. And so he cut and pasted his own little Bible together. And it literally could fit in his pocket because it was so small. And he didn't need a smartphone to do that. And then he said, Jesus only came to save our souls, not the body. Again, the body is inherently evil. And it is not worth saving. Did you ever hear that phrase, Jesus comes to save your soul? That's prevalent in our day. That's partly Martian because they, they will say, yeah, he came to save the body. But that's such a minor part. No, when Jesus came to save, he came to save the whole person. And that makes it different than Marcionism. Well, you got these early heretics. So what does the church do? They come out with some special teachings. You have, uh-oh, the didache, which is simply a word that means teachings. It's a basic Christian faith compiled by one of the great leaders of the early church, Ignatius, of what to believe and how to govern. They developed the rule of faith. Which is simply, how then are we going to govern the church and what are we going to do with developing and training those who come to the faith? See, back then, they didn't have books. You had to learn by... You, yeah, they didn't even have books that you could read. So you learned by questions and answers, by giving. So what do we expect our basic Christian to believe. And it comes out the Apostles' Creed. Notice what's not there. 
that little possessive part. They were not saying, this is the creed of the apostles. What they said is, this is the creed that helped to explain the basic premises and teachings of the apostles, of the scriptures. And again, how does it start? I believe. And you know why it starts that way? They spent a whole year with a person who said, I want to be baptized. And they took him through the Apostles' Creed. They took him through three parts. The creation. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. They took him through redemption. I believe in Jesus Christ. And it goes on for a huge paragraph because that was, the person of Christ was always the pivotal problem in, that, in the church. And then they come to the consummation. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Okay. And they go through a list of things. I believe in uh, the Ho Holy Apostolic Church. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life to come. They begin with the Holy Spirit. Because of Acts. Okay, you've got the creation, which is the Father, the redemption of the Son. And now they took off the words of, uh, took from the words of Peter who said, in these last days, in this time right now, this is the last days. It's not way out in the future when we think Christ may come. This is the last day. That's the consummation of all that God has created and Christ has redeemed. So they start with the Holy Spirit. And they work that way. So the person would learn this. They would study it so they knew what it actually said. And then finally it would come to Easter morning. They would have spent all Saturday night in prayer and meditation. And then comes Easter morning and they go down to the river or they go to the place of baptism. And the person would come and give his statement of faith. It's not a personal statement of faith of one that they had written down. It's a statement of faith that the church agreed to. I believe in God. I, I, I. See, it united the church together. And it spoke against docetism, um, Marcionism, and... Gnosticism, thank you. Somebody has to keep me on track. That's all there is to it. See how important that is? See how crucial it is to the life of the church? Now we get, we move up about a century or so, but they're still dealing with the same subject over and over again. And this is Modalism. In essence, what do you do with the divine human Jesus? And this goes on for about two to three centuries. You have one modalism called monarchical 
an archi an ism mono that's a kissing disease no, no it's one archaism one supreme one ruler so Marcionism basically says only the Father is divine. Excuse Andy. <laughs> You actually that that was only it just it was only well you can see my idol <laughs> come on it's just so prevalent it's just there there's a, a sense of, of of a unity of God but what he does is he shows himself in three persons. In the Old Testament, he shows himself as Father. He then descends to become the Son. You know, in a sense, leaving heaven, descending himself to become the Son. And, and you see that in the life of Jesus. And then after Jesus goes up, the Father comes back down or God comes back down as the Holy Spirit. Same person. Okay? That's what they said. There is adoptionism. And most of the times when you see this word ism, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> okay? Adoptionism says that Christ was, was endowed with divine powers at his baptism. So you take a look at him in the Jordan. He's baptized. He comes up out of the water, which could either mean he comes straight up or he walks out of the water. could take either way. And what happens? A voice from heaven comes out and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And at, right before that, the spirit comes down. It's the spirit who endows the man Jesus to become who he is. And therefore, he can do supernatural things like raise the dead, create new eyes, calm a raging storm. He can do that because he's endowed with the power but right before the cross, because God cannot suffer that spirit or that endowment leaves him. And he goes to the cross as simply a human being. And there he suffers the same death as what happened with the thief on the right, on the, my right, your left, and on the left. It was simply an endowment. Therefore, we can say that during that time, Jesus was endowed with the power of God. He was adopted. And then he was jettisoned. The problem with adoption is, once you adopt somebody, they're yours. No matter what happens afterward, they're yours. That's what the judge told us when we adopted our three children. You cannot disinherit them. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I will. This is... 
this is one of the fallacies that's in here. He is not simply a doubt. And then, oh, you, oh this is a great one. So this is where I really will need my notes to be able to read this. Sibelianism. Sibelianism means that God comes in three temporary manifestations. Three different names for the same God. Old Testament Father, Gospels, the Son, Axon is the Spirit. But only one God. Well, then you had the last one. And again, Arianism, which came from one individual called Arian. He was a bishop of Libya. Uh, he declared that Jesus is not the same substance or essence as the Father. He is subordinate to the Father. And so he deals with that relationship between the Father and the Son. Um, this is where they argued about the word substance. And in the Greek, homo usia. Now you may say that's Greek to me. Yeah, it is Greek to you. But what it means is homo of one kind. Usio means substance or essence. That God can only be of the same substance. Jesus could not be of the same substance. Therefore, he is not God. That that's one of the words. Remember I told you last week, and I know you all remember almost everything last week except the four reasons why we study the creeds. <laughs> Theology, biblical studies has its own peculiar vocabulary. Every profession does. And part of the work of a growing Christian is to learn, learn the vocabulary. You have to, if you're in the Air Force, you have to know what TDY means. Okay. If you're in electronics or physics or whatever, you have to know what the vocabulary is. That's one of the words you ought to know. Of the same substance. And because Jesus could not be of the same substance as God, he had to be the firstborn, the begotten Son of God. And they take that word to mean firstborn. And he's the first creature. From him comes everything else. So you can line it up with Colossians 1.17. That says all things come by him and through him he holds all things together. I mean you can see how that would fit into that. As long as he's the first creation. But if he's the first creation, you can't worship him. Otherwise you have violated the second commandment. You've created an idol. Even though he's a great person, the first created of all creation, he's still an idol. He can't be prayed to because you don't pray to anyone but God. And in that sense, if he's only the first created, does he really reveal the Father in his fullness? No. Because God is uncreated. He's the essence of all being. He's the foundation of all being. So you have someone like, and I was reminded of this Friday night, Jehovah's Witnesses. They're, they're Arians. 
So when those Jehovah's Witnesses button-nail you or come to your house, you look at them and say, Arians! Arians! And they'll go, what? I have no idea what you're talking about. That's the reason. That's the problem. Because all they believe, they believe Jesus is the first created. And therefore, they are the ones, they, you know, he is he's supreme in that sense, but he is not God. Then there's one more. I'm running out of space. New, whoop, Mo, Numo Tomke. And they basically said they accepted the deity of Christ, but they rejected the deity of the Holy Spirit. He's not fully God. Again, the word pneumo means spirit or breath. It's wind. And because it can be translated breath or wind, which are impersonal things, they would say the spirit is impersonal. You've heard God compared to the force. All you Star Wars fans, okay? An impersonal force, being. That's what they, they looked at. And so the Holy Spirit's not involved in salvation. He's not involved in your growth and your sanctification. He is simply it, the power. Again, Acts 2, they were praying. And tongues like fire came upon them. And a wind blew. And they began to speak in other tongues. That was an impersonal force sent by the Son and maybe the Father to make them who they were. But it's, has, it's, there's no deity in it at all. What do they do with 2 Corinthians where Paul says that you are being changed from one de degree of glory unto the next and that is by the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit is the Lord. And he puts those two together. What do they do with that? Eh, let's get rid of it. Take out my little pen knife, cut it out, and say, oh, that's okay. No, it just doesn't fit in with their categories. Now, uh, you, see this, you see this one and some of these in some of the Pentecostal denominations, the oneness Pentecostals, the only Jesus people. You only baptize in the name of Jesus because he is God. and The Father is this old decrepit person from the Old Testament and the Spirit is a force. And, and you see it in, in different ways or with the Jehovah's Witnesses. So out of this, <laughs> out of this I realize we are running out of time. Therefore, we will wait till next week. In radio, it's called a tease. <laughs> in movies and TV it's called a tease wait till next week no we won't do that you have the uh, council of Nicaea again the church gets together to deal with these and you have the council of Constantinople Council of Nicaea comes out and says that, the, that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is God. He is who he said he is. 
Uh, you have a famous father from that era called Alexander of Alexandria. Isn't that a great thing? Alexander of Alexandria. It's like John Luke. You just go right back in the Gospels, John, and you remember his name. Uh, they said Jesus was of the same substance Homo stasis, substance, the same substance as of the Father, the same essence. They all had the same godness, if I can put it that way, within them. And, and uh, the problem is, even after the Council of Nicaea, though they declared Arian a heretic and basically booted him out of the church, he was a charismatic personality, had a great following, especially in his own area, and others would listen to him, and his popularity continued to the place where he even overcame Alexander of Alexandria, who had defeated him. So they had to go to the Council of Constantinople, where they deal not only with Arianism, but also the deity of the Holy Spirit. And that's where you develop the Nicene Creed. It comes from there. The Nicene Creed says there are three persons in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are, they are all fully God. Three persons, but one God. And so, you look at the Nicene Creed. Uh, we're gonna, we've got to close down on that. I just want you to look, when you, when you say the Nicene Creed today, realize there are three parts. We believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, of, or God Almighty, maker of heaven, things visible and invisible. Right there with that word visible, they have denied the fact that ev that matter is bad. And that's an important part. Then you get to the part on the sun, where as they look at that part, they say to him that he is only begotten, begotten, not made. So the same idea of begotten is an issue from God, but it's he's not created. Just like Peg and I begot children. They are issues of us. They have 23 of my genes, 23 of her genes, and they're still trying to work with them. But they are issues of ours, of our substance, but they are their own persons. That's probably the best way you can come up with it. And notice how they formulate them. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. I like the word of, I know we use the word from. And it can be used in the idea of begotten with the idea of issued. God issues God, uh, light issues light, very God issues very God. But to me the word of is more important because it says there is such a close close. Uh, comparison. So, you can be like me when we say the Apostles' Creed. I'm a rebel at heart. 
and you are all reading it and going, God from God, light from light. I go, God of God, light of light, very God of, very God. <laughs> Nobody hears me, but that, <laughs> but that's simply it. And the second is that the, uh, um, the Holy Spirit incarnated him. That means he was fully man. And the Holy Spirit is divine. So they have a whole section upon the Holy Spirit in that. Now, we'll come back to that next week. That's your tease. That's your advertisement. Um, but what we see, and what you see with all creeds, creeds attempt to solve a problem. And they normally do a terrific job the difficulty is they open up other problems, which is what part of what we're going to see. How do you, what do you do with the person of Christ? If he's fully divine and fully man, how do you have two persons in one person? Ooh. How do you put those together? And that's where we'll begin next week. Aren't you all excited? Yes. Oh, wonderful. Marvelous. Let's go. Let's pray. Uh, Father, it is so easy to declare that you are God. And yet it is so complex when we begin to think about who you are. Thank you for your word, the revelation, that written revelation that helps us to be un begin to understand the differences and everything that goes on. Help us also, o Lord, to learn what it was from you today, that you would seal it within our hearts and our minds, that we would be able to use it as we hear others teach, and that we would be able to remain faithful to the one and only God, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for we offer this prayer in your name. And every person said, Amen.